So I don't know if you, if you ever have those mornings when you wake up and you think, what am I doing? What am I, what am I doing here? What's my, you know, what's my purpose in life? Or you kind of come to church. I remember my first curacy um, many, many years ago. We had, uh, we had it, was a, it was a guy, he was a teenager. And he came, he came on his own week in, week out. His parents didn't come, but he came as a teenager and every week he was there, sat in, sat in church. And then um, after a while, we realised that he'd, he'd stopped coming. And a few weeks went by and he, and he didn't come. So as the, as the young curer, I was dispatched uh, to find out why he had stopped coming. So I went round, I had a chat with him. And, um, and this was his story. He said, well, every Sunday morning, I would go to the newsagent to buy a newspaper. And on my way back, I would stop at church. And then he said, I, there, was, there was a bit more to it in this, but basically this is what I boiled down to. He said, and yet I realised I could go to the newsagent and buy the newspaper and just go home. And that was what he did. So that's why he'd, he'd been coming for, you know, years. And he just suddenly stopped coming because he thought, well, I could just go home and read the paper. Why stop off in church on the way on the way back. So I was kind of thinking this morning as we start a new season and a new term to think, well, why? Why are we here? Why are we here on a Sunday morning? Why do we do what we do? What's our purpose? Because we are a family. You know, we have a, you know, you know Bolney Chapel is a fabulous community of, of people. So, you know, I've, I've often said, and I often say, this is the, you know, a, a, with no, you know, nothing against any other church that I've previously been involved in, in case you're listening. Um, <laughs> but this is the one church where when I'm not here... I really miss being here because it's a family. And I think, you know, because we're quite small, it's easy to kind of do that. But I don't want to come here just because I have friends who are here. I want to have a, you know, a bigger reason. And I just want to dig into a little bit of that by reading a few verses from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to read verse 11 and then verse 14 through to the end. And Paul basically says what the purpose of his life is. He says, since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade other people. Verse 14, for, God, for Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Just pray for a moment before we 
dig into that. Father, thank you for your word, living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. May our hearts and minds be open and attentive to your living word this morning. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So why are we here this morning in, uh, you know, as a community in Bolney Village Chapel? Well, one of the reasons that we're here is because in 1885, a gentleman by the name of James Hazlitt, who lived in the White House over the road, decided to start a meeting in his hayloft, which is now the bedroom above the double garage, to invite people to come and hear about Jesus. He started a little gospel meeting in his hayloft and he invited friends from Bolney Village to come and meet with him and hear about Jesus. And as they did that, they um, started to commit their lives to following Jesus and his little community grew and it outgrew his hayloft. And because he owned some of the land uh, around this end of the village, including this piece of land that we are um, we're in this, on the, this morning, he gave this little piece of land to build a chapel. And he got his chapel from Goddard's Green in 1901. It was uh, second-hand. Uh, some of you will remember the old tin hut, the pink church. And it was brought over from Goddard's Green on a couple, uh, couple of ox carts in 1901 and erected. And lasted for nearly a century until the Keep Fit class uh, did for the foundations. And it started to fall down. And uh, we needed a, uh, a new building with stronger foundations. Uh, hence the current building. But why, why did he bother, in the first place, inviting people into his hayloft to hear about Jesus? Well, Paul gives us the clue in verse, he says, Christ's love compels us. Christ's love compels us. I think that was the motivation in James Hazlitt's heart when he invited people into his hayloft in 1885, was because he had discovered that God loved him, and he wanted to share that love with other people. And for everything that we do as, as, a, as a church community and as a followers of Jesus, that should always be the motivation for everything that we do. The motivation for putting on a breakfast once a month in the morning is not just because we like bacon and we like gathering together. It's because one of the things that I said a, you know, a number of years ago was we want to make it as easy as possible for people to meet Jesus. So in our culture, how do you make it as easy as possible for, well, you make a, you know, an environment that's easy to join to you and you, you waft bacon out of the door. You waft the smell of bacon down the road. And, but it's, our, it's the love that we have for our village that motivates us to do that. Because love is the, you know, it's the essence of who God is. You know, the Bible says that Jesus, and Paul is talking about Jesus Christ, says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Is the image of the invisible God. And the Bible says, the New Testament says, God is love. So unsurprisingly, when we look at the life of Jesus, we see love embodied. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his son Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. In John's Gospel, Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that they give up their life for their friend. God is all about love. His approach towards us begins and ends with love. It's the essence of who God is. It's why God does what he does. All his approach towards us begins with love. And so if we choose to follow Jesus Christ, it's that same love that compels us to share Jesus with other people. 
We don't do it because we want to fill up the church. We don't do it because we feel guilty. We don't do it because we're afraid of the consequences if we don't. It should be love. Just the love that we have experienced in Jesus Christ. And the love that we look at our friends and our neighbours and see them living without a hope that we have discovered. The hope that we were singing about a moment ago. It's, it's love that compels us, that causes us to share But we need to think a bit beyond that because it's not just enough. The message that we have is not just, well, God loves you. That's a great place to start, to say to those around us, well, God loves you. Sometimes when people ask me what I do, if I've kind of got the presence of mind rather than to say, oh, I'm a, you know, I'm a vicar. Because that, there's there's nothing, there's nothing more certain to kill a conversation dead. (laughs) Then you know, you're having your hair cut at the barber, and the barber says, Oh, what do you do for a living? So I'm a vicar. That's the end of the conversation. So, so I try and come up with something a little bit more creative. And, um, so, if I have the presence of mind, I say, oh, I have the best job in the world. Because my job is to tell people good news. That's what my job involves. It is all about telling people good news. And it's all about telling people that God loves them. That's the job of a pastor or a vicar or a minister. That's the job of a Christian. It's the best job in the world. And why are we so embarrassed about it? That's the, that's the thing that I get so annoyed about. Why am I so embarrassed about telling people good news? That's my job. It's God's love that compels us. But Paul says... That's what compels us, but actually there's a message that we need to give. Because it's not just that that God is love, it's also that God is holy. He is perfect, and we're not. And that's a problem. That creates a problem, because it it creates a separation. I, I know I've told you this story before, but I'll tell it again, because even if you don't like it, I like it, and it makes the point. It's the story about the, the fly and the insectocutor. Oh, a few blank faces. That's good. Right, I'll carry on. When I was a kid, when, I thought you got very short memories because I've told you this story a load of times. Better. <laughs> so anyway, when I was a kid, I used to, we used to go to Stanmer Park just on the outskirts of Brighton, and we'd often go on a Sunday afternoon, and we'd go for a walk around Stanmer Park. And then I don't know if it's still there, but in those days there was a working dairy farm, and so we would go after we'd had a walk around Stanmer Park. And we watched the cows being milked in the farmyard. And then right next door to the farmyard was a cafe. And we'd go into the cafe and have an ice cream. And all the flies that had been buzzing around in the farmyard, because the cows were all lined up waiting to go in to be milked, and all the grass that had gone in the front end was coming out. You, yeah, you can paint a picture. So the flies that had been busy in the farmyard were then drawn into the cafe by the lovely sugary sweet smells of the ice creams and the tree vines. They'd fly into the cafe and then be distracted from the sugary ice creams by the purple glow of the insectocutor. And I, I don't know what it is about that purple glow, but flies just love it. I was at the, the cafe at the Rawson on Friday and um, every, every few minutes there's, there's a crack as a fly meets its doom on the insectocutor. And there's something about the insectocutor the flies just love. And so as a kid, I would sit in this cafe watching the flies fly in, get distracted from the sugary barn, and then they'd, just, they'd make a... not be a fly line. <laughs> fly line, whatever. They would just... They'd head for the... And before, when, you know, before they realised this was not a good idea, bang, that was it. And as a kid, I'd just sit there a hot sunny day watching these flies... 
And I don't know if it's that flies are inherently selfish or whether the one that was about to land didn't have the presence of mind to call out a warning to the one that was following behind. But, but they just one after the other, bang, bang, bang. Now the thing is, it's not that the insecticutor has a grudge against flies. It's not that insecticutors hate flies and they just think, wow, I can't wait for a fly to come so I can kill it dead. It's just the nature of the insecticutor is incompatible with the nature of a fly. That's the way it's designed. The insecticutor is designed to have a nature incompatible with the fly, so it zaps the flies. Now, the nature of God is such that his nature, his holiness, his righteousness, it's incompatible with our nature as, as the Bible would describe it, as, you know, as people who are fallen. We've fallen short of God's glory. We're not like God. That's the thing. We're not like him. We may be drawn towards him like the fly is drawn to the insecticutor, but we don't share the same nature. So we see it so clearly in the Old Testament. The people of God in the Old Testament are so aware of God's holiness that they, they fear to come too close because they understand they're not like him. Their natures are incompatible. They can't be them. That is a real problem. So, if, so just kind of go with me on this. Imagine the insecticutor loves flies. And the insecticutor thinks, I really don't like the fact that every time a fly gets anywhere near me, it dies. You would think it's insecticutor. I need to do something to help these flies land on me and not get zapped. Because I hate the fact they just keep getting zapped. But that's the heart of God. God is holy, but he's also loving. And so his love compels him to do something about the fact that we're like the fly that can't land on the insecticutor because we die. And that's what Paul says Jesus has done. So our message is not just God loves you. That is a fantastic place to start. That's the place to begin. Um, You know, whoever we meet, whatever their lifestyle, whatever they've done, whatever crime they may have committed, the starting point is God loves you. God loves you. You may be the, the worst sinner in the whole world. God loves you. And because he loves you, this is what he's done for you. Uh, Verse 21, Paul says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin. Jesus, the perfect son of God, made him to be sin for us. You know, we look at our world, and our world is, it's not in a good place, it's not in a good state. Our world is full of evil, it's full of wickedness, it's full of suffering, it's full of disease. And so often people say, well, why doesn't God do something about that? The answer is, he has, and he did, and he did it on the cross. On the cross, as Jesus died on the cross, every sin, every wickedness, every depravity, every falling short of God's glory, every sickness, every disease, every imperfection was consumed by Jesus on the cross. That's the hope that we have. So we don't, you know, we kind of think, well, we don't need to look to the future for a solution to these things. 
because the solution is in the past, 2,000 years ago when Jesus died on a cross. I don't know if you remember the film, there's a, I don't know, it's um, maybe 20 years ago now, I'm getting old. A Jim Carrey film, The Mask. Do you remember Jim Carrey film, The Mask? Great, very, very funny film. Basically, Jim Carrey plays this um, very unconfident uh, bank clerk called Stanley Ipkiss. And then he discovers this mask. And when you wear the mask, it brings out, it kind of exaggerates your inner, inner kind of character. And Stanley Ipkiss uh, sort of lives this um, imaginary life through cartoons. So when he wears the mask, he becomes this larger-than-life kind of wacky cartoon character. Towards the end of the film, there's a scene where kind of the heroine, kind of his, his girlfriend, has been um, chained up in a nightclub by the gangster who she was girlfriend to. These details are unimportant. <laughs> Apart from the fact she is chained up with a bomb. And as in all of these films, the bomb has a convenient counter, so you can count down and see exactly when it's going to go off. You know, just as, a, as, a, as an aside... If I were building a bomb, I wouldn't put a counter on it. <laughs> How stupid is that? Because then everyone knows when it's off. I literally wouldn't. But in movies, they always put a counter on. To, but anyway, there's a bomb. And the bomb is about to go off. And if it goes off, everyone is going to die. It's, you know, it's like everyone's going to... What's going to happen? At the last minute, um, Stanley gets the mask, puts it on, becomes the cartoon character. He grabs the bomb and swallows it. And it explodes in his stomach. But because he's a cartoon character, as in all good cartoons, nothing happens. This massive explosion goes off. He doesn't die. He, he, he sort of... He sort of has this sort of... It goes off and he does this sort of critical look and then there's a little burp. And I think there's a line that comes out. But basically, the thing is, suddenly, in that moment, he has a nature that can absorb this bomb. Now, on the cross... Jesus absorbed, consumed all our wickedness, all our falling, all of this world's imperfections. Jesus consumed it on the cross. And he was able to do so because he had a nature that was divine. He had a nature that was God's. And so all of this world's wickedness and depravity, all the rest of it, it didn't harm him. It didn't harm him. Paul writes, verse 15, He died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. And was raised again. Jesus took all of that stuff on himself on the cross and then rose again. That's the hope. That's the hope that we were singing about before. That's the certain hope of the gospel. The reality is that the message that we have to share with those around us is not that Jesus can help you live a better life. Jesus can be your comfort when you are in trouble. The message of the cross, the message of the gospel is without Jesus, you're dead. Without Jesus, spiritually, Paul writes in another letter in Ephesians, he says, before you knew Jesus, you would, spiritually you had no life. You were dead. Now, I've um, only come across one or two um, corpses um, during the course of my ministry. But the one thing I've observed about corpses is they don't raise themselves. If you're dead, you can't raise yourself. You need God to raise you. 
And Paul says, without Christ, we may be living life, we may be enjoying life, but actually spiritually we have no life. And it's in Jesus that we discover that new life. So he says, in verse 17, if anyone is in, in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. The old has gone, the new has come. If we are in Jesus. How do we, Paul writes the, the last verse, he says, in him we might become the righteousness of God. How do you, you know, how do we benefit from what Jesus has done on the cross? Well, the wonderful thing is, you don't have to do anything. This is what sets Christianity apart from every other religious system in the world. You don't have to do anything. You just have to accept the gift that is offered. The gift of Jesus. You don't have to work up to it. You don't have to earn your brownie points. You don't have to have so many bacon sandwiches at late, late breakfast. You, you don't have to do anything. You just have to say, actually, Jesus, I realise I need you. And I realise that you love me. And I want to live my life with you. And in the moment that we do that, Jesus gives us his resurrected life. It's, it's, just, it's the most wonderful, wonderful gift. And that's why Christ's love in us should compel us to tell others this good news. So this morning, as we, as we resume some of the things that we were doing pre-COVID and as we resume some of our normal activities and as we begin to you know, imagine new things, let that be the challenge for us that we are, we are so aware and so consumed by God's love for us that we are compelled to tell others. There's a, a kind of compulsion to say to our friend, well, why don't you come to, we do this breakfast thing at the chapel once a month. Why don't you come? Why don't you come and share some of you? Why don't you come on Alpha? Why don't you come and find out about the thing that we talk about? We've, one of the things we're going to be doing this term is, so we've mentioned it before, this um, resource, uh, the word one-to-one. It's just a way of reading John's Gospel with a friend. Uh, and you don't need to know anything because it's got everything is in the book, the questions, the answers. But it's just a way of sitting with a friend over a coffee once a week and saying, why don't we... Do you want to read this John's Gospel with me? See what it says. The wonderful thing about God's book is God does the talking. If you open God's word, God will do the talking. So it's a challenge to me as to all of us. But I want to be compelled by the love of Christ because I know how much he loves me and how much he's done for me and how much he's changed. I want that to compel me to uh, you know, invite others to come and experience his, his love for ourselves. So, so as we restart, take stock of where we are. Let's just remind ourselves it's God's love is the reason that we're here and while we continue to be here because until Jesus returns, people need to know how much he loves them. So let's just take a moment to pray together. And... Um, I want, to, I want to pray a couple of things. I want to pray firstly for just that we would know how much God loves us. And the, just the reality of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Because even those of us that have been you know, Christians for a long time, we, we become complacent and overly familiar with the good news. 
and we can forget what good news it is for others. Sometimes we need God by his spirit to stir our hearts afresh. And sometimes we can, you know, we can come to church for, for years and never really understand what Jesus has done. So, Father, I want to pray first of all that you would speak to each of our hearts this morning. Those of us that already know you and those of us that are on a journey of coming to know you. Holy Spirit. Reveal more of the Father's love to us today. May we know that love is the essence of who you are and the beginning of your approach towards us. And then, Father, fill us so abundantly with your love and grace and mercy that it it just spills out of our lives so that other people notice. And Father, in this new season, as we open up again, give us boldness, boldness to speak of you, boldness to offer invitations, boldness to take risks. Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.